Um, good afternoon, everybody, and very warm welcome to this afternoon's meeting in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. Um, it's a very great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker this afternoon, who's Professor Lee Jenko from the LSE. Lee is Professor of Political Theory at London School of Economics. She works across political theory, intellectual history and Asian studies and has a particular focus on demonstrating the value of Chinese thinking for posing new questions in political life. Two recent books are a monograph, Changing Reference, Learning Across Space and Time in China and the West, and the jointly edited Oxford Handbook of Comparative Political Theory. Tonight's talk is entitled Moral Knowledge and Empirical Verification in Late Ming China. And as I say, it's a very great pleasure to introduce Lee. So over to you. Thank you very much, Phil, for that lovely introduction. Um, welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here addressing the Aristotelian Society. I have some slides that I'll share with you now that hopefully will help you. Can everyone see the slides? We're good? Yeah. I hope, hopefully this will, this will help everyone um, understand what I'm saying, including uh, navigating some of the Chinese names and terms, which can be difficult for people who, um, who are not uh, native Chinese speakers. So I just wanna start um, by explaining, I've added a subtitle to my, to my main title, which is Li Zhi and Diao Hong on particularity and otherness. So Li Zhi and Diao Hong are the two main thinkers I'll be using to examine a much broader question that addresses um, the larger project from which this talk, this essay is drawn. Um, and the larger project seeks to explore the philosophical grounds on which Chinese literati thinkers, that is to say the Chinese elite thinkers who are capable of reading fairly high levels of um, classical Chinese, they were extremely literate elites, how they came to legitimate and in some cases value alternative non-Han Chinese ways of life in the early modern era. So part of this project, this larger project is inspired by the observation that in both China and Europe in the early modern period, there existed a series of um, what were called uh, horizontal continuities, sometimes called parallel historical or social developments throughout the 16th to the 18th century. Um, these included rapid urbanization, commercialization, improvements in printing technology, increased social mobility, and large-scale territorial expansions for economic and political gain, uh, which I um, somewhat controversially refer to as imperialism on the part both of the expanding European states on the continent, as well as the, China, uh, the Ming, the late Ming um, Chinese expansions across its, particularly across its northern and southern borders. And it wasn't until the rise of the Qing Empire in the mid 17th century and the fall of the Ming Dynasty um, that led to a consolidation of these territorial expansions into a larger Qing state. But one of the things that's surprising is that these histories are, they are parallel. That is to say, they weren't necessarily mutually influential. What was happening in Europe and China was for the most part um, unrelated to each other. There were limited intellectual contacts in particular at this time. Matteo Ricci was one exception, but he didn't necessarily, his, his ideas didn't necessarily influence um, Chinese thought in a 
comprehensive way. I can answer more questions about that in the Q&A, but for right now, I just want to note that there were parallel, um, albeit not mutually influential trends in China and Europe, the early modern period. And we know from people like Sankar Mutu and others that um, these territorial expansions that both Europe and China were experiencing, that in Europe they did profoundly affect the political theories that came out of the early modern period. So for example, Sankar Mutu tells us um, of early modern writers such as the Baron de la Hontan, that the near absence among new world peoples of what were taken to be artificial hierarchies and inequalities, in particular those of political authority, would be asserted by virtually all of the foremost social contract thinkers in the European tradition. So in other words, um, the, the contact of European societies with these non-European peoples had a profound impact both on their political theory as well as on the ways in which they understood and comprehended difference. So my project wants to look at the legitimacy of difference in Chinese terms. We know what was going on in Europe, what was going on in China at the same time. And it turns out that there were a number of thinkers, and I've listed some of them here, Yang Shen, Chen Di, Xiao Hong, and Li Zhi, who were ostensibly interested and in many cases actually produced documentation of non-Han Chinese societies along the Chinese borders. Um, Yang Shen in particular, that's an image of a contemporary painting of Yang Shen on the right of the slide there. Um, it's not the greatest resolution. It's it's unfortunately the best one I could find. Um, it's currently, the painting is currently hanging in the um, Palace Museum of Beijing. Um, but Yang Shen uh, was famous for going native when he was exiled to the southern province of Yunnan. And that's him with flowers in his hair, cross, potentially cross-dressing. It was a matter of some debate at the time, engaging in indigenous practices. He was very well known for actually producing fairly balanced histories of the indigenous people of Yunnan, as was Chen Di, who provided the first, the earliest first-hand written account of indigenous practices of on the people of Formosa, now called Taiwan. Uh, but the people I'm going to mainly be spending most of my time here talking about are Zhao Hong and Lu Zhu. So Zhao Hong offers an interesting defense of heterodoxy and of Chan Buddhism, or what's often called Zen Buddhism in, in the West, um, in his essay, Jupan, on, on branches. And Li Zhu is well known for being what many historians call a moral relativist. I don't think philosophers would necessarily call him a relativist, but he was famous for saying that diverse ways of life were legitimate and interesting and worthy of pursuit in their own right. So looking at these four major thinkers of the late Ming period, I became curious about what it was that prompted all of them to write either balanced records and accounts of non-Han Chinese peoples or to offer philosophical defenses of non-Han Chinese ways of life. And it turns out that all four of them were, had, they all had something in common. And this led me to think, well, then could I use what they have in common to think through what in Chinese terms we could call the legitimacy of difference? How is it that Chinese people thought about how different societies and cultures could be validated as if not inherently valuable, at least legitimate, as, as not demanding transformation along Han Chinese, uh, along Han Chinese ways of life. Um, so the four of these men were all historians, as it turns out after a fashion, historians in some sense. They were all adherents of, of three teaching syncretism, that is to say they all believed in the unity of Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. 
They were all contemporaries. Most of them knew each other and were in at least epistolary uh, relationship to each other. And all were committed uh, both to a certain form of Neo-Confucianism associated with Wang Yangming, as well as to a practice of philology and historicism that most historians see as fundamentally diametrically opposed to the kind of philosophy promulgated by Wang Yangming. And this turns out uh, to be the most interesting thing about all of them, is that according to most contemporary, most current historiography on the late Ming, um, these men shouldn't exist. They shouldn't be proponents both of some version of Neo-Confucianism, uh, some version of Neo-Confucianism that is associated with Wang Yangming and to uh, philology and historicism. Um, but it is actually, as you will find out in this talk, it's my wager that it's precisely because they are committed to both of these projects uh, that they are able to articulate the legitimacy of difference in Chinese terms. So let me just sketch uh, briefly um, for a moment that the key tensions, the philosophical background tensions that are driving um, that are driving these these people to do what they've done. And then I'll spend the rest of the talk explaining how they square the circle, so to speak. Um, so most historians, most intellectual historians of this period, um, and many subsequent accounts of the late Ming period by later Chinese thinkers in the Qing dynasty tend to represent a stark tension between the self-cultivation and the inner kind the, the search for inner knowledge that characterized Wang Yangming uh, Neo-Confucianism, with the, I suppose, the hard-nosed antiquarianism and empiricism that characterized um, what is known in Chinese as Kaohsiung or empiricist scholarship. So late Ming scholars themselves tended to see a division between what they called Song learning, which means literally learning from the Song dynasty, or Chengju, uh, Neo-Confucian orthodoxy, uh, on the one hand, and Yang Ming learning, Wang Yang Ming learning on the other. Um, so this is where we get into a bit of um, a, a bit of difficulty separating out various schools of Neo-Confucianism. So I'm going to try to explain them briefly. Song learning takes its name from the dynasty, the Song dynasty, in which Zhu Xi, famous philosopher, potentially the most famous philosopher in Chinese history after Confucius, and the brothers Cheng Yi and Cheng Hao revived Confucian learning um, in the year 1313. Exegesis of the classics, according to these Song commentators, Juxi and the others, were established by the state as orthodox reading for the civil service examinations. And the civil service examinations were basically the only path to employment for educated people in traditional China. One of the most prominent features of Song learning was its emphasis on investigation of things, go wu, uh, as a means of yielding individual insight into the universal principle or coherence which existed in all things. So this principle gives the school its alternative name. You might often hear it in English, the, the learning of principle, the school of principle. So this principle, this concept of principle or coherence, and things that's translated as coherence, posited a universal cosmological unity that saw ethics, human relationships, classic texts, and the natural world, all of these things, as reflecting the same correlative dynamics Investigation and participation in all three of these was required to gain insight into the broader reality behind them and to direct one's actions appropriately. Um, so it's worth noting that for Chinese thinkers of this era, 
this domain of empirical investigation. The thing that you were supposed to investigate is a means for understanding the, the fundamental patterning of both moral knowledge and the natural world, included text and philology, as well as the natural world, as well as lots of other things that we typically wouldn't associate with empiricist scholarship. They weren't necessarily seen as distinct areas of investigational learning. So this metaphysics, articulated in part as a response to Buddhist ideas, drew from key passages in the ancient text, the Book of Rites, um, as well as the Doctrine of the Means. So these are classic texts that some Confucians found particularly um, helpful in their revival of uh, Confucian learning. Its most well-known passage, the most well-known passage of the Book of Rites, linked the investi this investigation of things as guru. Uh, to a chain of causation that enabled insight eventually into the principles of social action and finally to individual moral self-cultivation. So these were all seen as a cascading uh, chain of causation, whereas investigation of one would yield insight into the other. Investigating empirical phenomena would lead to understanding the principles of good order and governance as well as the individual self-cultivation. So that's Song learning or Changju orthodoxy or what is typically called Neo-Confucianism. Um, but the doctrines of Wang Yangming, uh, which formed the main body of work to which the thinkers I'm gonna be discussing today uh, responded, was also, this is also called learning of the heart-mind. Um, I'm sorry to, confuse everyone with terminology, but unfortunately these terms and ideas are translated in so many different ways into English um, that it becomes, it can become quite um, confusing if they're not carefully set out uh, beforehand. But the doctrines of Wang Yangming departed from this Song learning orthodoxy, this Chengju orthodoxy, primarily in rejecting the idea that moral knowledge sought outside oneself in those empirical patterns, texts, things, the natural world, could actually be objectively investigated. So they denied the connection between an empirical investigation of external objects with the moral knowledge that was supposed to structure our inner workings. Right? They held rather that this moral knowledge arose from and could be validated by an introspective benevolent knowing, what they called liangzhi. It literally translates as benevolent knowing within each person's heart mind. So the, I'm translating xin here, which literally means heart of heart mind, um, because it heart mind better captures the um, the connection between you know emotional and rational mental capacities that for these thinkers um, that they were actually talking about. Um, so these arguments of the of the heart mind school or of the Yang Ming school of Confucian learning drew on the claims of the ancient thinker Mencius that human nature was inherently good, such that it could yield spontaneous insight into moral knowledge. In the late Ming, this knowledge was often seen as validated in deeply personal and sometimes idiosyncratic ways. So there was a belief that people had to have very idiosyncratic experiences in order to embody and understand the moral knowledge that was truly in their heart mind. Um, but self-cultivation and various kinds of experiments in living were meant to help practitioners strip away the social conventions that, according to this doctrine, obscured their access to this inherent moral knowing. Despite the particular and contingent nature of such experiences, they were usually understood to bear witness not to an inherent diversity of human life, but rather to a universally shared identical sense of the good to and for each person. So despite the idiosyncrasy and the experiments in living in which some of the more radical proponents of this doctrine indulged, none of them, most of them didn't actually think 
um, that what they were pursuing was some kind of divergent understanding of moral pluralism. They were actually thinking that they would all sort of converge on the same universally shared moral good. It would just sort of look different and be experienced differently by each person. So the most radical formulation of this position uh, was found in the Taizhou school, which endorsed the belief that self-cultivation and authentic sentiment were sufficient to provide moral guidance without recourse to observation of the material world. Engagement with, with, engagement with tradition, uh, reading of classic texts, or participation in conventions of any particular kind. So that was the most radical school. And as it turns out, thinkers I'm about to talk, I'm about to discuss, Li Zhi and Jiao Hong, were members of this most radical branch of Wang learning. Now, all of this, all of this was seen as fundamentally opposed, and is still to this day by historians seen as fundamentally opposed uh, to what developed, what reached its epogee about 100 years later in the Qing Dynasty, which was called Kaozheng, empirical scholarship. Now, at the height of Kaozheng, scholars insisted that um, they turn their backs on this introspective moral knowing and instead put their faith in antiquarianism, historical contextualization and philological techniques that were designed that through some kind of empirical and fairly objective to them investigation, uh, the validity of classic texts as well as historical records could be determined. So you can see that these seem on first glance to be two fundamentally different kinds of scholarly practice. One is, is all about moral self-cultivation and moral introspection, and the other is about the validation of classic texts and exploration of the natural world as a means of understanding um, the validity, uh, validating um, the, the accuracy of, in particular, classic texts as well as historical records. So these seem like fundamentally um, opposed doctrines. But how could it be then um, that some of the most devoted followers of the Taizhou school of Wang Yangming learning, that is the most radical branch of, of radical critique of song learning um, and its doctrine of spontaneous, albeit universal moral knowledge. So people like that I mentioned on that earlier slide, Yang Shen, Xiao Hong, Chen Di, Li Zhi, could also be among those promoting historicist scholarship, Kaozheng scholarship in the Ming. So they were doing both things at once. Um, and it's been almost universally ignored the extent to which these four people in particular were pursuing these two seemingly fundamentally different kinds of practice. Um, these doctrines simply do not seem to fit together. One entails a rejection of textual truths in favor of meditation to discover the inner depths of moral knowledge located inside oneself. There's that benevolent knowledge rather than outside in empirical patterns or guidance. And the other is a hard-nosed antiquarianism committed to contextualizing and verifying the very empirical phenomena, particularly historical research and classic texts that Yang Ming studies rejected as irrelevant to the discovery of true moral knowledge. There's even a claim by um, one of its practitioners that I do not annotate the classics, the classics annotate me. That is to say the classics only exist as a footnote to my own personal experience. It's not the case that I'm getting anything out of these classic texts. Um, but my wager is that there's a reason that these four people were involved in, in both of these different kinds of scholarly pursuits. Um, and this is also, as it turns out, the framing intuition behind my more specific examination of the two thinkers I'm about to discuss, Li Zhu and Xiao Hong. So although Wang Yangming's own philosophy uh, and Wang Yangming himself, as it turns out, um, tends to underscore the universality of human nature and thus of human values, 
His emphasis on the idiosyncratic experience of moral knowledge encouraged investigation of particular contexts, historical, aesthetic, as potential sites through which such moral knowledge could manifest itself. Now this, what I'm calling a turn to particularity, encouraged empirical investigations, grounded as it happens in a historicism open to the possibility of past difference, which led eventually for some thinkers to the acceptance rather than rejection of non-Han ways of life. And so I understand that that's kind of a, a, a mouthful, um, but I will be explaining, I think it'll become clearer as I go along. I will be explaining why it is that um, Wang Yuming's doctrines have the effect on these men that it did. Um, so in this essay, I examine arguments from two such scholars, um, the flamboyant iconoclast Li Zhu uh, and his lifelong friend, the historian and classicist Xiao Hong, to show how this interest in the empirical world, despite their commitments to Yangming learning, led them away from commitments to moral universalism and toward an appreciation of the diversity and plurality of human difference. So I choose these two thinkers in particular for several reasons. Both of them defend the legitimacy of non-Han Chinese experiences and texts. They're interesting, inherently interesting just from that point of view. And both are members of the Taizhou school. Yet the two thinkers have radically different approaches to their engagements with the empirical world. Over their lifelong friendship, uh, Jiao and Li left a record of letters and essays in which each responds empathetically and sometimes passionately to the contrasting perspective of the other. And some of those records are actually identified on this slide. And I singled these out not only because those, so those bits in red are where Li Zhu on the left is responding. Those are letters in which he responds to Jiao Hong. And on the right, Jiao Hong is directly responding to a provocation of Li Zhu and the essay on the right. Um, but the other reason I'm showing these two is to give you some indication of the kinds of texts I've had to work with under lockdown. So I haven't had access to libraries that would have typeset punctuated editions of these texts. I've been reading unpunctuated woodblock prints, which is definitely given my classical Chinese a run for its money. Um, the work of these two major and intimately connected figures of the Ming Dynasty offer a unique opportunity to examine how these two adherents of the Taizhou school debated about the nature of empirical investigation, including most prominently classicism, let's say the philological investigation of classic texts and commentaries. So the, they debated about the nature of this empirical investigation on the one hand, and the proper relationship of those activities to the moral insight promulgated by Wang Yangming learning on the other. So against the background of their shared commitment to Wang Yangming learning, the disagreements between Li and Zhao track distinct ways of incorporating what we might call particularity into their philosophizing about morality and in turn, how that particularity transformed dogma rather than entrenched it. So how it came to overturn their deeply held commitments to a universal moral knowledge rather than entrench it. By particularity, I mean the divergences from the expected and conventional that were disclosed through exposure to diverse practices, historical records, texts, sensory data, aesthetic judgments and objects, or everyday experience. Peter Bull, the historian of China, Peter Bull, has argued that the study of such practices and texts and other things disrupted the smooth correlation presumed by Chengju Neoconfucianism to obtain between, on the one hand, the unitary coherence or principle presumed to structure the wider universe out there of which such texts and experience were a part, and on the other, the intuitions in here that validated moral knowledge. This disruption, according to Bull, encouraged new forms of scholarship 
that valued learning for its contribution to disciplinary specialization rather than moral cultivation. So what Peter Bull sees happening at the end, by the end of the Ming, beginning of the Qing Dynasty, mid 17th century, um, is that people suddenly become interested in learning and scholarship for scholarship's sake, not necessarily for the moral insights it will provide, but rather for the cumulative knowledge that comes with disciplinary specialization. So he, Peter Bull characterizes such scholarly, scholarly pursuits as alternatives to Neo-Confucianism, particularly to the inward turn of Wang Yangming learning and its tilt towards the spiritual, as he calls it. Yet, for adherence of Yangming learning, such as Li Zhi and Jiao Hong, study of the particular was undertaken, I argue, for the very purpose of providing evidence of or insight into the presumably singular moral way. This is why it's so fascinating to study how they went from this to something very different. They were not treated as objects of study in themselves, divorced from the broader moral patterns they were meant to reveal. This is crucial for understanding how Li and Yao could understand differences of practices, ideas, or language between one society or time period and another as potentially legitimate rather, rather than necessarily deviant or wrong. I argue it was the very correlation presumed by Wang Yangming learning between objects out there and moral insight in here that provided the template by which Li, Zhao, and others came to see particularities as giving rise to and possibly justifying different kinds of moral commitments, whether for themselves or more usually for others. So Lige's, let's start with Lige's objections to the Neo-Confucian orthodoxy, to Chengju learning, um, which are actually the most well-known and certainly the most flamboyant in all of Chinese history. Um, in his essay, very famous essay on the childlike heart-mind, the Tongxinshu, Li argues that aesthetic and moral direction should be taken spontaneously from the beginning of the heart-mind before conventional ethics or classic texts to form one's judgment. He sees Confucian orthodoxy as one of the most corrupting such influences, and he singles out slavish devotion to canonical classic texts and their commentaries as particularly harmful for one's moral development. Uh, Li Zhu's approach to the classics was broadly shared by other members of the Taizhou school who were strongly influenced by Chan Buddhist doctrines. These doctrines upheld the purity of the fundamental nature of all humans, expressed in such texts as the Platform Sutra, but they also reinforced existing Confucian beliefs, deriving from the canonical ancient text Dementius that held human nature was inherently good. The task of cultivation for these Neo-Confucians, therefore, was to remove the false notions or conventions and desires for conformity that obstructed access to this pure good nature introspective self-cultivation rather than study of canonical texts or external phenomena form the exclusive and irreducible source of such knowledge. As Lee were to famously put it, um, so far as the childlike heart mind was concerned, why speak of the six classics? Why speak of the analects or mentions? For Lee Ju, classics and their commentary are what he called robbers of the way. So of course the way here is a common mode of uh, referring to um, the moral good, right? The way, the way things should be. He says, quote, the medicine prescribed depends on the illness. Surely there is no fixed and unchanging prescription. Given this, how could we hastily accept these classic writings as the perfected doctrine for endless generations? So he's, 
pretty clear that he favors, rather than engagement with classic texts, the spontaneous interactions with nature, other friends, old and new, aesthetic objects, art, paintings, poetry, that our engagement with these kinds of objects would lead to the spontaneous recognition that would let us know we've actually found our childlike heart mind. And that childlike heart mind should give us, that should be the only thing directing um, what we take to be right and wrong. But at the same time, he ends up undermining a bit um, the belief that we would all sort of end up with the same childlike heart mind when he acknowledges that the medicine prescribed depends on the illness. He suggests here that maybe there are different ways of acting morally. Um, and if there are, they might be equally legitimate to the ways that his own childlike heart mind has revealed. Now, not all members of the Taizhou school took this radical subjectivism in the same direction as Li Zhu. So Jiao Hong, uh, Li's friend Jiao Hong, is among the most prominent Taizhou adherents to defend certain kinds of empirical investigation and classicism, not as a rejection of, but as both a consequence and requirement of the pursuit of their own self-cultivation as a means of gaining insight into this moral nature. His explanations for their importance are crucial to explaining the seeming contradiction between Taijo commitments to, to subjective moral self-cultivation on the one hand, and the background requirements for evidence-based historical investigation on the other. So he engages these questions most directly in his preface to the classical commentary of the two Sus. I'll explain all of this in a minute which explains in the greatest detail why classicism specifically, that is the techniques of philology to study canonical classic texts, why this kind of classicism is necessary for the moral insight that makes literature both resonant and relevant. Now, it's a preface to the classical commentary of the two Su's. The two Su's in question are the well-known literary geniuses Su Shi and his brother Su Shi. Um, they were living in the 11th century. So their Song Dynasty era classicist commentaries were actually almost systematically overlooked in favor of their much more well-known world famous contributions to poetry and literature, literary composition. Um, but Zhao looks to them because the classics are, Pake Li, necessary, he holds, for producing moral knowledge of the way. He says, quote, the six classics were taken by the early Confucians to be, the, to be the literature, the texts that carried the way. And the ultimate fruition of texts is a classic. Why? No one on earth who has abandoned the way can still produce texts or literature. Technique, here he means the philological techniques identified with classicism, help to approach the way, and the way is carried by the classics. To say that you can abandon the arts of classicism and still be able to produce literature or texts is to abandon the stream and become able to draw water, to abandon kindling and be able to make a fire, to abandon the sun and moon and be capable of illumination, unquote. So Jell's preface here boldly states the need for engagement with classics and with selected commentaries about them in order to arrive at the meaning of the sages they contain which for Zhao and his readers was understood as being the right kind of moral knowledge, capable of leading the world back to the way. This engagement requires both techniques and arts of classicism uh, to glimpse these meanings in the pages of those classic texts. They were ineliminable components of the process by which the reader might cultivate such knowledge in himself. Yet what sets Zhao's argument apart from the assumptions of earlier classicists who held that commentaries alone were sufficient to penetrate these mysteries is his insistence that engagement with the classics crucially goes beyond the mere techniques of reading or philology. Technical knowledge of words and texts 
Tijal were not divine, able on their own to deliver the crucial moral knowledge that the reader sought. Only the individualized insight of a careful reader or commentator was capable of summoning forth the abundance of meetings intended, according to Zhao, by the early sages who had penned the text. In the hands of skilled and cultivated readers like the Su's, Zhao argues the text spouts forth new and unanticipated changes in insight. This was only possible because Su Shi and Su Chi were capable of deploying their self-apprehension, their zizi, to reveal what Zhao calls the subtle words and abstruse, abstruse discourses of the ancients, unquote. What he claims is the true reality of the sages, which appear throughout the classics. Yet by claiming a need for both the subjective interpretation of a suitably cultivated interpreter, on the one hand, and the empirical reality of the classics and commentaries meant to encourage self-cultivation on the other, Zhao effectively, if unintentionally, destabilizes the classics as exclusive, as exclusive sources of meaning. He seems to acknowledge this fact when he disputes the very idea of orthodoxy. He says, quote, the way alone is not that which one sage, the way, sorry, the way is not that which one sage alone can plumb. Its significance is so multivalent and vast that we are never given full knowledge of it. We know only that in reading the classics to apprehend this way, the ones before us open it, he says, the ones after us push it further. We're schematic, it is expanded, we're subtle, it is elucidated, and in this way, its principle, its we, becomes apparent. Jiao claims the same hope for himself. In seeking to penetrate the classics and study the ancients, he considers his own critical edition of the Sioux's works as a whistling arrow, announcing what is to come without legislating it. So Jiao analogizes this creative mode of engagement to learning music. In a passage that alludes to a famous story of the zither master, Cheng Lian, and his technically proficient but spiritless student, Boya. Cheng Lian admonished his student, Boya, for his inability to play the zither with true feeling. So he abandoned him on a distant seashore to provoke the emotions required to elevate his music. And apparently this was a pretty terrifying episode in the life of Boya, but it was meant to actually provoke him to play the zither better. So both Li Zhi and Zhao Hong engage this story as a way of explaining their position on um, empirical investigation and its relation to moral knowledge. So to Zhao, the classicist mode of engaging texts can be compared, quote, to the craving for sound, which must respect believing in antiquity so that one can follow up with the right notes, with the right sounds and move the plectrum across the zither. The plectrum is kind of like the pick that you use to play the zither. It involves not only returning to the demands of the musical score, but also finding a great master to provide instruction. Just as in the case of Cheng Lian and Boya, the, dis the disciple must travel to the remote shore, reaching the gloomy depths of the mountain forests and the deep caves full of seawater. But afterwards, suddenly the zither can express for the entire world the sublimity of the, the, sublimity of the tune of water and mountain. If an ignorant person were to suddenly take up the zither and make a sound with it and say to himself, this is music. Such a situation would be akin to asserting that one need not study the ancients, that one need not draw awareness from one's heart-mind, and could just defiantly have faith in oneself alone to master the zither. What logic is this?" Unquote. So here, Zhao emphasizes the need for classical scholarship to learn both from the ancients and from one's heart-mind. What emerges is spontaneously creative, but still resonant with the whole world, even as its content, like Boyas' tune, has never been anticipated before. But despite the obvious room that Zhao's 
account here leaves for creativity and the workings of the heart-mind. His argument was anathema to Li Jie, to his, one of his best friends, Li Jie, who called Zhao out for placing too much emphasis on reading and education in place of the spontaneous arousal of creativity that came from unmediated engagement with the world. In an afterward written for the now lost text Journeying with Companions, Li Jie directly criticizes Zhao Hong on this point. He, see, he says, quote, it seems Chenglian had Chenglian's distinctive sound. Not even Chenglian could transmit it to a disciple. And Boya had Boya's distinctive sound. Not even Boya could learn it from Chenglian. What we call sound is the sort of thing that one encounters by chance and instantly grasps. One cannot obtain it through study or imitation. So-called blind ignoramuses or ignorant people, having received no training, resonate immediately upon such a chance encounter. Boya, having been trained, was able to produce marvelous sounds only after he had shed his training, unquote. The implication here is that Zhao's classicism, his study both of ancient texts and of the past masters who interpret them, is a direct hindrance to realization of the way. So according to Li Zhu, you could just spontaneously feel it, you'd know when you had it, and then you'd be able to do it, just like Boya, according to Li Zhu. It was not because he had received training in how to play the zither, but because he had resonated with the chance encounter that nature brought to him, that he was suddenly able to play the zither with such proficiency. So for Lee, the true way can be revealed only through understanding for oneself. And that means engaging in a variety of idiosyncratic experiences that provoke moral insight in ways that may be different for everyone. For Lee, these prominently included, as I mentioned before, encounters with, with, with aesthetic works and objects, such as poems, paintings, sculptures, with friends, old and new, with the wonders of the natural world, as we saw with Boya, and finally, even with the occasional classic text or two, but not taken too seriously. Pauline Lee, the philosopher Pauline Lee, and William DeBerry, this, this the sinologist, have both distinguished Lijia's position here from that of his more famous philosophical forebearer, Wang Yangming. So Wang focuses self-cultivation on the removal of the selfish thoughts obscuring the true heart-mind. And he tends to ground the nature of that heart-mind in an abstract universal philosophical scheme. But in contrast, Li is getting away from Wang, yeah, a bit away from Yangming learning here, even if he claims to be inspired by it. His experience of the heart-mind is rooted in the spontaneous desires that Wang Yangming himself actually associated with selfishness, with selfish desire. The maintenance of this childlike heart-mind for Li is shared by all, but remains grounded in everyday practices that may manifest differently across different groups of people, just as something like health might be conceived of differently over the course of a single person's lifetime or across different kinds of persons. This is an important feature of Li's perspective, which enables a recognition of human diversity, even as he assumes a single universal moral endowment. In fact, Lee seems to assume the same correlation between external stimulation and investigation on the one hand, and inner moral knowledge on the other, even for instances where the objects and experiences out there lead to different kinds of values in here. As Lee notes, quote, the variety of people and things in this world are countless. If one wants all these people and things to abide by one's methods, then heaven and earth would not be able to function, unquote. Only by indulging in this diversity of experience and desire, he seems to say, can each thing in the universe find its proper place, where all things move in harmony and, in his words, quote, spontaneously come to completion and fulfillment, unquote. 
So we are now in a better position to understand why Li Zhi might object to his friend Xiao Hong's reliance on classic texts to gain insight into the heart-mind. To Li, over-reliance on such texts, like the social conventions they both draw on and support, obstruct rather than nourish the spontaneous use of one's heart-mind. But they also may frustrate the expression and ex examination of humanity and its diversity, resulting in a homogenizing sameness that obscures the true working of each individual's heart-mind. So given how these reflections are framed as a direct response to a claim of Jaholm, we might rearticulate them as posing the following kinds of questions for Lee's friend. Insofar as the words of the classics are contingent products of their time and place, does not their careful scrutiny under the auspices of classicist philology reproduce their biases, obstructing both the emergence of a truly self-attained creative understanding of moral value and of alternative contexts in which that alternative value might take shape. That is, how can consideration of particular empirical details in classicist research, the kind of thing Zhao Hong was famous for doing, not simply entrench the conservative values that elevate the reading of certain texts, such as the classics, over other modes of experience as sites of moral insight, when we remain unsure, according to Lee, even of how well those texts reflect truly universal lessons anyway. Now, Xiao Hong has provided one response to these concerns, which Lee does not really acknowledge. That is, the classics should not be reduced to what Lee seems to assume here are mere collections of texts. They are not finite repositories of value or blueprints for action, but as Xiao already pointed out in his preface, fountains of ceaseless and dynamic insight that exceed the bounds of the text when handled by a careful interpreter. But Xiao also offers another more dynamic response to Li's concern in other works, most prominently in his defense of Chan Buddhism. A close examination of Xiao's argument here reveals another path by which late Ming thinkers could travel from a commitment to shared universal value toward a recognition of legitimate defense. In his long three-part essay on branches, Xiao Hong defends Chan Buddhism from charges of heterodoxy leveled by Confucian detractors who see its foreignness as a key reason to deny its relevance to certain concerns of what throughout the essay Zhao calls Confucian learning. So he begins the essay by arguing that followers of Laozi, that is the Taoists, who criticize Confucians and Confucians who criticize Taoists do not really understand the true nature of their own teaching. He argues that when the sages spoke of the way, it was like humans trying to name the sky. That is the vastness of this way, the lied attempts to offer a single name, leading the Chinese to call it one thing and foreigners, such as the so-called barbarian Xiongnu peoples, another. These differences do not reflect any differences of underlying reality, Zhao insists, but show merely that humans force various names on something that has no knowledge of itself. On this basis, Yao argues that the three teachings of Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism are not actually three things, three separate things to be brought together, as many syncretists of his time would argue, but rather they are an originally undivided entity that at present is unfortunately glimpsed only through three particular kinds of manifestations, which are then incorrectly construed as three separate bodies of doctrine and insight. The first consequence of his approach is most succinctly stated in a quote he appropriates from Zhang Shangying. I studied Buddhism, and only after that, I understood Confucianism. In particular, Zhao traces the concept of tranquility and purity, which is the Sanskrit term parshuta. In Chinese, it's qingjing, and it was a key goal of Taizhou self-cultivation practice. 
He traces this concept from ancient Chinese texts to the Dingguan classic and the Laozi, the Taoist canon, to Buddhist verses. And in doing so, he's trying to show, and he's speaking effectively of an isomorphic concept, adumbrated, but not sufficiently realized or recognized in the Confucian or Taoist traditions. As Zhao puts it, without turning to Chan Buddhism, how could we understand this concept? But in admitting that the truth is scattered and fragmented among many different texts and traditions, Zhao effectively denies the possibility of a single source of truth or of a truth that could possibly be known prior to the investigation of these texts or traditions. It is this insufficiency that drives Zhao to make an even more radical argument. If no one recognizes ideas such as tranquility or the real meaning of human nature in the Confucian texts, even if, as Zhao insists, they actually do reside there, then it effectively means that these ideas must be garnered from other places. In other words, although motivated by the assumption that a single universal truth, here an insight about how the stillness of the mind directs one to moral knowledge, underlies all things, which is his explicit claim, investigation of the very external world, the texts that hold this truth, presumed to and that are presumed to reflect that unity, do not actually offer further evidence of it. So the essay on branches directly expresses the view that it is only by turning to other traditions and other texts that we become capable of certain kinds of understanding, even when that understanding concerns texts or traditions with which we are already putatively familiar. The consequence of this argument is that when acknowledging a universal principle behind different manifestations of a shared truth, those manifestations themselves become less subject to censure. To the contrary, they serve rather as a source of insight into truth whose exploration and investigation are actively encouraged. So Dow himself would likely not see this process of one of supplanting so much as discovering the truths that were already there in some form or another. But the overall effect of his argument is to recognize that foreign ideas and texts go on to constitute the very basis of thought without regard to their period or origin of emergence. In other words, we are as we are, regardless of our knowledge or willingness to acknowledge it. Moral reality to Zhao stands outside of us as an independent object of investigation that can transform our own assumptions about what we know or are. Finally, to conclude, as members of the Taizhou School of Yangming Learning, both Li Zhu and Zhao Hong urge attention to particularity because such divergences from what is expected or conventional ostensibly illuminate a broader universal truth. But the very correlations between the external world and internal moral insight presumed by Wang, Wang Yangming learning mean that for both thinkers, such particularity manifests as differences in moral knowledge. As a result, the very nature of the truth each is looking for becomes substantively, if inadvertently, transformed. Lee offers a fairly generic moral and cultural pluralism that is strongly inflected by Taoist skepticism. He rejects the investigation of classic texts, arguing that they constrain the spontaneity required for the heart-mind to find authentic fulfillment. He argues that such spontaneity can arise only from unmediated encounters with particular experiences and objects beyond their instantiation in culturally sanctioned texts such as the classics, traditions, or conventions. Tiao Hong, in contrast, finds that historical investigation of such texts imparts not further constraints on thinking, but a liberation of thought, enabled by the inexhaustible depth of sagely utterances and Buddhist insight. What is significant here is that both thinkers are looking for something both new and creative. The insights of the heart-mind are irreducible to the particularities of context that encourage their emergence. Likewise, they do not reflect any kind of unity or even convergence on what is universal. 
Both men's views can thus be distinguished from the moral philosophy of Wang Yangming, where they both ostensibly began. For Wang, the outcome of individual self-expression and self-cultivation in the service of what he called moral knowing or an inherent good knowing, the Liangzhu I spoke of at the beginning, was recognition ultimately of a common moral nature in all mankind that largely supported existing social and political values. As DeBerry points out, the value of the individual and his uniqueness is just not something Wang Yongming dwells on. Both Zhao Hong and Li Zhu, in contrast, see, human, see in human diversity important clues about the nature and sources of knowledge. Thank you. <laughs>